Thank you for that flourish at the end, Amber. I like that. I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. And just a couple of announcements. Um, we'd like to publicly welcome the High Slip family, Kim Nelson's kinfolk from Middle Tennessee. And uh, we're glad that you're worshiping with us. And we'll expect you back every Sunday from here on out to join us. So you can feel free to move on down to Chattanooga or even Rock Spring, Georgia. And, uh, next week, parents, put on your calendar that it's going to be youth choir practice for next week. And that's all the announcements I have. So let's worship the Lord. I have a couple announcements and... Andy, I'll need you up here, and Jerry as well. Surprise announcements for you guys. You have a seat. Come on up, Jerry. Uh, in your bulletin here, just note a few things here. I want to thank Linda again for remembering to put this in here, this Tune My Heart Catechism. I really like this. I think it's going to be helpful for all of us, but particularly parents with children, to encourage your children to... Uh, Put the plant these seeds of theology in a format in which they could read and understand it and perhaps even memorize uh, biblical responses. We were talking in our prayer meeting uh, this morning uh, with, the, with the men in the cottage there about this one, and it, it's, why did God make you and all things? And the answer is, God made me to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And then a verse here to think about is from 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is a seed that needs to be planted deep in the hearts of um, all of us, and particularly the children uh, who are not going to get that message in, in the culture in which we live. And it is it, my heart is saddened and burdened to see folks who really don't know the purpose in life and they strive for it in many other ways and they'll wind up failing instead of flourishing this will lead to flourishing what a great truth to deeply plant in the heart of all of us and particularly the children so please pay uh, close attention to that i also wanted to mention this is elder birthday month um blake uh you kind of went against the grain, but that's good because there'll be a new generation coming up. We're the really old elders, and you're the youngest. I think yours is in no early November. And, uh, but you do redeem yourself because we'll have the um, fall fellowship at, at your ranch down there. So I appreciate that, and thank you. And that's a good way to mark uh, your birthday. But the... The other three elders here, and for a long time, was just us. Um, we, we made a rule that you could only be born in March, so that's what we did. <laughs> um, Andy, of course, is the, is the oldest. Uh, <coughs> well, his birthday's the third. That's, this is the seven, and I'm eight, so that's the way that works, right? Anyway, if you notice there, Ken mentioned there's some, uh, there's some uh, siding off the top of the backside. We'll... Get that fixed, Lord willing. It, it happened on the 3rd. So I don't know if there was just this large birthday cake with a lot of candles to be blown out or whatever. Uh, but in any case, um, 
I, that was just a coincidence, I suppose. But we'll get that fixed. Um, so in any case, I do want to stop just in all seriousness to say that I, I really appreciate the elders, and I know you do as a church as well. And uh, on behalf of us, I do have a card for each of you. Come on up. And uh, no card for you because... Uh, uh, you have your own special, right. you're, the, you're born in the wrong month. So, but if you'll go ahead and stand here, I just want to pray on behalf of the church. I'll tell you what, why don't you all get over here so we can kind of collectively get together. And I just want to thank the Lord for um, each of you. And I know the church really appreciates your work. When we got together, one of the things that we wanted to do is collectively uh, pray and minister to each of you to, to help uh, build you up in the work of the ministry so that you would be equipped to do so. And these men, uh, mostly behind the scenes, uh, work flawlessly and continuously and faithfully uh, for this ministry. And it wouldn't be what it is without them. And so we really appreciate your dedication coming here, uh, your sacrifice and your time. And I know the church appreciates that as well. So I'd like to pray and thank the Lord for you men uh, on behalf of the church and, and Christ. Let us pray. Father, we come together. We're thankful for your goodness to us. I thank you for these faithful men who have demonstrated their um, commitment to Jesus Christ our Lord by serving this body. I pray that you continue to bless them, to keep them, certainly to make your face to shine upon them, pray that you would grant them peace, even in the midst of great work and difficulty that they must bear, the burdens that we bear. I'm thankful for each one of them helping me to bear various burdens here in the church and, and really making my uh, work much easier and collectively gathering together to help us all to walk in wisdom. I pray that you continue to bless this church continue to grow it in grace and knowledge of you and godly leadership who will provide a great example of your goodness and your glory i pray this in christ's name amen amen, amen. blake will now have a reading for us what i want to see how much you appreciate that. <laughs> not as much as you're worth brother god bless you Our Life of Christ reading is found in Matthew chapter 13. We're going to continue on in the parables, starting in verse 24. And it reads, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest at gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. 
He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed this is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let us go to the Lord in prayer, and I want to give you a moment privately where you're at. Indeed, to pray that you will have ears to hear God's word today in the various ways it's communicated. Prayer, through our singing, through our reading of scripture, and through the proclamation of scripture. Take a moment now, prepare your heart privately, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let us pray. Father, what a great and grand privilege it is for us to gather together, your children, adopted into your family, chosen before the foundation of the world, sin atoned for, I pray great joy would overflow our hearts. May we truly know your love, your grace, your mercy, and your faithfulness. As we sing about those things today, I, I pray they will resound from a heart that has been enlightened by the Holy Spirit to recognize the, the significance of that truth. We, we know the evil one would want to discourage the saints and so I pray through the power of the spirit that indeed you would provide great encouragement to us not based on the circumstances which we find ourselves in or perhaps any difficulties that might come our way but because of our union with Christ and the promise that we have in him 
and looking forward to inheriting, indeed, that promise that is beyond our imagination. I pray, Father, that you will continue to sow good seed, prepare the hearts to receive a great harvest. I pray your good word would flourish greatly in each of us. May it produce those things that conform to Christ. May we be continually expressing his character in our life, not through the flesh, but through the power of the Spirit, through a regenerate heart. May we truly have joy and peace, self-control, love, gentleness, kindness. May we be faithful. May we be submissive to one another in ways that are appropriate to our various relationships. Bring us continued unity in the faith. And brothers and sisters, may we gather together in our fellowship today, recognizing what really unites us together is our relationship with Jesus Christ. I pray that Jesus Christ would be glorified today, magnified and lifted up. I do pray for anyone who truly doesn't know Jesus Christ, even in this day and even in this room, that you would make yourself known. Make it known through the instrumentality of your word as it goes forth, through the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would grant us all attentive eyes to see, attentive ears to hear, and attentive hearts to respond to your truth. May we be encouraged today and built up in the most holy faith. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's take our hymn books and stand and turn to number 268. And we'll sing the risen Christ. Philippians 3.10 says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. 268.
turn to number 420. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy. Isaiah 55 once says, Come, everyone who is thirsty. Recite the, the responsive reading there, and Pastor, they've got uh, a worship participant. So why don't you be our worship okay. participant? I'll be the worship leader, and then we'll have the worshipers. So 113, we'll do the responsive reading. It's uh, God's ongoing grace. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. By the fullness of His grace, we have all received one blessing. After another. Each one of you, for every day, and every season, for every life, 
God opposes the proud, but gives, gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. For by grace you are saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is a gift. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. The Lord has saved us and called us to a holy life. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Therefore, since we have declared righteousness, we have through our Lord Jesus Christ, also through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. church aren't you glad his grace has no measure Amen. let's read more about that grace today in acts chapter 3 found on page 911 in your pew bible that's acts chapter 3 found on page 911 the title is called the lame beggar healed now peter and john were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer 
the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms for those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed, at, directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or, or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise you up for you, a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first the, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your new mercies every day, Lord. 
we thank you for your wondrous power that you show us and your, the many glories, Lord, that you give us. Whether we're foolish, we act in ignorance, Lord, like these people, yet you still give them chance, Lord, to forgive and repent and to glorify you. We thank you for all you do, Lord, and we pray that we would be like the prophets and, and glorify you, Lord, and proclaim you, uh, proclaim you proudly to all the people in their sin and their ignorance, Lord, that they may see your mighty, mighty works and repent to you. Help us to glorify you in all we do and help our offering to meet your needs, Lord, in the many nations of this world that all people may come to know and see you, Lord. And bless our service today. In Jesus' name. Take our hymn books once more and stand and turn to number 220. We'll sing, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. We'll sing all three verses. Don't miss our chorus at the, the, the top. 220.
church. Indeed, I hope you know the story of Christ, who we'll look to now from the letter to the Hebrews, and we'll look at chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. I'll do my best to try to finish this to some degree, this section that we're on, verses 1 through 12, this third warning in the book of Hebrews. Remember, this is essentially a sermon, the book of Hebrews. It is apostolic. This is the type of preaching that they would have preached. It's recorded for us. And his emphasis, if you don't get anything else from the beginning to the end, is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And I hope you've heard a lot of Jesus Christ thus far in our reading of Scripture and in our prayers and in our um, uh, singing. Because that is what needs to be emphasized and, and known. This warning given here by this preacher in the book of Hebrews, it begins with a charge, if you remember, in chapter 5 and verse 11. It says, don't be dull of hearing. Uh, And then it concludes, that section will conclude here in our text in verse 12 of chapter 6. The same admonition, more or less, just phrased differently in our translation. It says, don't be sluggish. Those commands to not be dull of hearing and to not be sluggish translate the same Greek word. It it essentially means don't be lazy. This is an ominous warning. It's, It's a forewarning, if you will. If you fail to pay attention to Jesus Christ daily, in your growth by grace, in your life, if you fail to to gain a greater intimate knowledge, feast on Christ, if you fail to grow in maturity, as he'll talk about in verse 1 of chapter 6, that may very well lead to a regression from the faith which could ultimately lead to walking away or rejecting the faith. Falling away is the term that's used. This is apostasy. Apostasy, as we've mentioned on more than one occasion thus far, it doesn't refer to those people who are absolutely ignorant. It refers to those who know, who have some awareness of the faith to perhaps even a great degree. If you remember our previous few sermons, we went through that, these five characteristics that is outlined in our text. For those who actually do walk away from the faith, who apostatize the faith, they're apostatizing something that they know about. And remember, they were once enlightened, that is, they heard about it. They had knowledge of it. They, they even tasted, if you will, or experienced is the idea of taste. Tasted Christ, experienced some of that. It, they were exposed to the very work of the Holy Spirit. 
They experience the dynamic work of God's word, which we have even within this congregation today. And they have participated in the powers of the age to come. And that is looking forward to that eternal promise made by God in recognizing his, his seeing his work even now among the saints. They know the faith. They, they participated in the faith. They instead, after hearing it and knowing it and seeing it among the saints, they willfully turn their back on the faith. They willfully turn their back on Jesus Christ. That's apostasy. That reading that we had this morning from Acts, the charge, if you remember from Acts chapter 3, if, as it was read, it, that we are called to listen to him, Acts 3.22, in whatever he tells you. That's the charge for all of humanity, not just these folks there at that time, not just these folks gathered here, but for all of us to, to listen to Jesus Christ, to whatever he tells us. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen, verse 23, to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. That's the charge there. This is apostolic preaching. That was uh, Peter preaching back then. This is consistent all the way through. God spoke in various ways and through various means. Remember chapter 1 in Hebrews. But now he has spoken through his son. This is the final word. Listen to him. That's the charge. It's a great warning. Reject that and walk away. Well, then there's going to be a problem which we're going to address, and that is a point of no return. Verse 4 in our text I'll just highlight it. We'll read it in context in a second. But look, it says it's impossible, and then it gives the characteristics, the five that we mentioned, of those that were you might have thought were in the faith. They, they experienced it. They knew about it. But it is impossible to bring those people back, to restore them back to repentance. Well, that's something you don't hear very often, I would have to admit. And so we'll have to unpack that in, in the text. I'll try to look at the argument itself and flesh that out to a greater degree. That is, there is a point of no return. There is a point in which you might walk away and you may never come back. Analogy is then given in our text, an illustration, if you will, of that very thing and why this would be correct and right. And finally, the application, though, that is given and driven and, and really what is really on the preacher's heart, and that is to provide assurance, not doubt, but assurance to those that are in Christ. N knowing all of this will bring about great assurance to those that are truly regenerate and trusting Christ. Let's read it in its context and we'll see what we can accomplish today in our exposition of this text. I'll just begin in verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. Remember, he's saying to the Jews here in the Hebrews, he's saying, leave 
those ritualistic things that you were engaged in that pointed to the reality of Jesus Christ because he has come. All right? That's what he means. Goes on to maturity. Not that they're not of value. They're still of great value. But the substance is now here in Christ, which answers all of that. So he gives those examples of, of those kinds of things that were pointing to Jesus. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and in instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this will do if God permits. For it's impossible, verse 4, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Why? Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Verse 7. For the land has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, for, for whose sake it is cultivated. It receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet, <coughs> yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Let us pray. And Father, we do pray for that prayer to be realized in our own lives. We would not be sluggish. Instead, we would have great earnestness to have this full assurance of our hope and endure even to the end. I pray through the power of your goodness and grace and glory that you will manifest these affections in our heart to have true assurance of you, have a deep-seated hope in Christ and Christ alone. Strip away everything else that would detract from you. And may we continue in the faith of those who have gone on before and have continued to proclaim this great truth. Give us patience to inherit a blessed promise. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. The way I've structured this text, if we can get through it, is, if I don't go down too many rabbit trails, if I do, please forgive me, but if you want to structure it and look how I'm looking at it, and you can look at it too, this, this argument then is, is made, verses 4 through 6. This, this argument that he's saying, which again, I, I don't hear much, maybe you do, but this idea and of this concept of the impossibility of bringing someone back to faith who has walked away or fallen away. That's a serious 
circumstance. And the argument is made in verse 4 through 6. Second, then, this analogy or illustration. Did you see it as we read the text? 7 through 8, agricultural analogy is used to explain the argument. And then finally, this application in the balance of our section, verse 9 through 12, application is really the point of what is what he's striving for, and that is to really embed great hope in the believer, that they would have this assurance of hope. That's what we all need. We need our assurance in Christ to be increased, and that's what he is preaching on, and that's what we'll emphasize too. So let's look at first this argument that's made, this idea of falling away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. This circumstance of falling away or apostatizing the faith, as I mentioned, it comes about from people who have heard, they've heard the preaching, they've heard the teaching, and in the case of this preacher, he fears some are within that congregation. In fact, in their circumstance, due to the pressures of life in which they had within the culture and their society, they have a desire to go and do what everybody else is doing. You see, the, the whole culture, the Hebrew culture there, they were engaged in all of this religious uh, ritual activity that was good and beneficial, but it had been fulfilled in Christ. And they hadn't gone on to maturity in Christ. That is, they had confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, but most of the culture did not. Most of the culture rejected them. And so it cost them to be culturally different, if you will. Not, not that they looked odd or acted odd per se, but, but that they had a different understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And that is what is significant, and that affects everything about their life, and the folks rejected it. They turned away from it. And these, in this congregation, were tempted to, well, go down and follow everyone else. Do what everyone else is doing. That's the easy way. But it doesn't lead to life, and it doesn't lead to flourishing in life. This idea here is a formal rejection of Jesus Christ. It is a willful decision, not made out of ignorance or under some sort of duress, but a rebellious choice to simply walk away. John would talk about that in his epistles. We've alluded to that before, that those who actually do this are then declared to be that they have never been regenerate. That's why they ultimately do that. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us because they were never of us. If they were, they would have continued. There is a sin unto death, if you will. And he will talk about that, John will, in 1 John 5, 16. <coughs> if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. 
There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. I don't know specifically what that is, but I think that is within this realm uh, as opposed to something that leads to life. And the point is simply this, that we can't take for granted just because we have been enlightened, just because we had some experiences of Jesus, just because we think kindly of Jesus, talk to him in, in our prayers, and uh, we, we think of Jesus in, as, a, as, a, um, uh, as a great uh, uh, um, point of reference, if you will, exposed to the work of the Holy Spirit, experiencing the word of God and the power, that that is going to be necessarily characteristic of someone who never falls away. You see, all of that engagement, probably the, one of the clearest examples of it might just simply be Judas. I don't think you could get any closer than Judas to Jesus, do you? He was within the inner circle. He was exposed to all of it. He heard the teaching right from the very Lord's mouth. He truly experienced and the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the miracles that Jesus performed. And we're not talking to just an incident here and an incident there. We're talking this in the ministry, that three-year ministry of Jesus Christ, everyone was getting healed. He would just speak, and the winds and the waves would hear his voice and obey. You've never seen anything like that. True, a miracle would occur. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Judas was exposed to that, and yet we know what happened. He sold out the Lord. He apostatized the faith. He did feel sorry for what he did, but his repentance is just simply a response to his evil. Even that was an act of selfishness, not true godly repentance. In fact, he he took his own life in great despair. Rather than calling out in mercy to Jesus, like the thief on the cross who recognized his own true guilt and turned to Christ for salvation. Well, why can't these apostates then be restored? And I'm not suggesting that I could point out and those that would not be restored or could not be restored. I don't... Um, pretend to do so. I think the preacher of Hebrews is doing just that. He's, he's just preaching this in general to the church to provide a warning in general since there's no way that we can examine the hearts of people, <clears throat> but we can ask for you to hear his word and examine your own heart. But why can't everybody just come back to the faith? I mean, what's the problem with that? Look look at verse 6. 
The answer is given right there. These who formally and willfully reject Christ after knowing all of this and exposed to this, they're not coming back because, verse 6, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Again, it's just we were going to do our reading, we're reading through the history of the church in Acts. It, you remember in, um, in our reading again here, uh, it, it talks about the same concept as well, a call to repent. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 14 in our earlier reading, it describes what these men of Israel did as Peter was preaching. In verse, let's go back to verse 13. He talks about the miracle being confirmed and accomplished through the power of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought about our, their glorious servant, Jesus Christ, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. So here is a willful, that's an example, this is a willful rejection of Jesus Christ. How? Because they knew about it in all of their preaching and all of the prophets that came before explained this to them. They had it in the written word of God, and yet they denied Jesus Christ in the presence of Pilate and sold him out as a group collectively. <coughs> and notice verse 14. I'll read it for you. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. I think that's a great imagery of what apostasy really is. And again, this is Anyone walking away consciously and willingly from Jesus Christ, where are you going to go to? You are are denying the holy and righteous one. It's capitalized in my text, which is right. These are formal statements about Jesus Christ, the holy one, the righteous one. And instead, you take a murderer. You killed the author, verse 15, of life, whom God raised from the dead. The author of life. The call then in verse 19 is repent. (coughs) Repent and turn back that your sins may be, be blotted out. Listen, if you apostatize the faith, that's who you're siding with. You're siding with those who would deny the holy and righteous one. You are siding with those who would kill the author of life. Oh, they're not going to kill their imagery of Jesus, their their made-up imagery of Jesus, the Jesus of their own heart, an idol. But we're talking about Jesus Christ of who he really is, as disclosed in his holy word. If you walk away from Jesus, if you fall away from the faith, you're siding not only um, with, with all in the crowd, I think I've mentioned this before, who did what? They all cried out 
here shortly later. Crucify him. Crucify him. That's the response of the crowd to Pilate as to what he would do with Jesus. Turning your back on Jesus Christ and going to anything else, it will not bring about any kind of fulfillment in your life. It will not bring about flourishing in your life. The devil is deceptive. And he'll make you and entice you, attempt to at least, dangle something that looks more fulfilling, that seems like that's going to bring you happiness. But the circumstances of this life and anything that you can treasure that you can find here does not compare to the promises and the inheritance that is in Jesus Christ. He is the supreme one. He is the glorious one. Don't turn your back on him. Because there is a point of no return. Now some do return. So I'm not suggesting that there are some who fall away from, from our perspective and um, don't return because, because they do. But there's some who don't. I mean, we're familiar with stories like the prodigal son. That's great. He came back. Or the wayward sheep that Jesus goes out and rescues. Return and repentance is a gift of God by his grace. It is a demonstration of his grace, but he is not obligated to do so. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace, would it? Now, he will take in all that truly repent, but remember, that repentance is brought about by God's marvelous work of grace in the life of the sinner. But there is a point of no return in which your heart could be hardened to the point and God is not obligated to go rescue you. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I can't remember if we went through this, but it would be worth looking at again. Briefly, I know we talked about it, I think, a couple weeks ago in our ministry training class. It was one of the texts Andy pointed out. I think it's a good text. It's in Hebrews 12. We'll get there in four or five years. But... uh, No, hopefully sooner than that. Hebrews 12, verse 14, a call to strive for peace. That is, for those that are regenerate, here he's preaching the church and telling them to strive for peace. It's good. And the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like, and here's the example, Esau. You remember him? He sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was what? Rejected. 
For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That's a hard statement, isn't it? But he goes along with what he's talking about in chapter 6, doesn't it? That's the warning. You know, th- this is God's judicial judgment that's brought about. In our mind, we think, oh, well, if we mess up a little bit, we can always come back. We can always get everything fixed. There isn't always a second chance. That's the warning. I mean, we're going to preach and call everyone to repent and believe, but there might be a time in which that preaching comes through and your heart is so hardened you can't hear it. You don't have ears to hear. You don't have eyes to see. You don't have a heart that can, be, uh, can feel the affections of Christ. This is a, a great warning. And what did, in this illustration here of Esau, what, what, is he, what does he trade his birthright? His birthright would have been a double portion of an incredible inheritance, right? Property and all that went with it. He trades all of that, his future blessing, for a single meal. And we look at that and say, how ignorant could this be? If you walk away from crisis, a lot worse. Can you imagine the eternal inheritance that is awaiting for those that are in Christ? What what, What compares to that? All of Abraham's resources? No. Beyond that, it's all of Christ's resources. See, these physical things just simply portray something, these material things portray something that is immaterial because we have a hard time grasping something that is immaterial, but we can understand something that is physical. It points to that which is spiritual. He forfeited his treasure for a bowl of beans. I suppose perhaps he thought he was kind of crafty, which he was. Maybe he could talk his way back into it. But in His real-life experiences, if you have read through the book of Genesis, you'll know he couldn't. He forfeited his blessing. There is a point of no return. That's the point. In this case, there was no second chance. Back to our text in Hebrews 6. He says in in verse 11, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance and hope to the end so that you wouldn't be sluggish or you can think of lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. That's the difference. He'll tell us about some of those people in Hebrews chapter 11. That's what that's for when we get to it. People like Moses. When he grew up, he refused to be called Pharaoh's, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The call is, don't harden your heart against God. 
God may judicially allow you to continue in that rebellion, that hardening, which is judgment, and give you up to your own desires, which will bring about death. Let's look at the second point here, then, how this is illustrated. The analogy is, comes in verse 7. And notice here, I'll just reread it, 7 and 8, two categories, the blessed and the cursed. That's it. For the land has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop, notice the word, useful to those who, for, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. That's the two categories, the blessed and the cursed. The blessed are the righteous, those who have been made righteous by God's grace. The cursed are those who God leaves to their own devices. Without his direct intervention, we would all be among the cursed. So God justly allows them to continue. God is not obligated to come out and rescue every person, everyone that is cursed. When he does so, it is an expression of his grace, that is, his unmerited favor. If God leads us to your own devices, it will still glorify him in demonstrating the justness of his wrath against sin and sinners who engage in it. He illustrates that in this analogy agriculturally. If you have a crop that's good, it's useful and received as a blessing. But if you have one that's going to bear a lot of weeds, it doesn't do you any good, and so you just dig it up, and it's justly burned. You see the two categories? I mean, we, we have all kinds of issues about diversity and inclusion. There's only two groups. Bless and curse, that's it. has nothing to do with your ethnicity. It has nothing to do with how much money you do or don't have, what side of the tracks you came from, or any other categories we want to include. You know what? There's two groups, the bless and the curse. That's it. Familiar passage, John 3.16. You might want to turn there. I think Gordon will be teaching on that soon and look forward to it. He's done a good exposition on that, and we'll te be teaching on that in our ministry training class. I highly encourage you to be a part. But look at John 3.16 in its context, for example. And we're familiar with the passage, John 3.16, God so loved the world. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. This is God's grace, love. This is his mercy. By not giving us what we deserve, we deserve what? Death. Grace, giving us what we don't deserve. He gave us Christ, an unmerited favor, granting us Jesus Christ, 
call to repentance and faith, that's what it means to believe, <coughs> do so and you'll have eternal life. You'll be among the blessed. But notice here the context in which God does this. Verse 17. He doesn't send his world, he doesn't send the Son into the world, that is the incarnation of Christ, to condemn the world. Now why did he why did Christ come? In order that the world might be saved through him. That is, those that would believe would be saved through him. That was the purpose of of the incarnation. Because whoever believes in him, note this, verse 18, he is not condemned. But notice the contrast. But whoever does not believe is condemned, not at the moment of Christ's incarnation, but he's condemned when? Already. Because unbelief is a state of condemnation. He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We talked about it before. The Holy One, the Righteous One, the author of life. There is no other life. There is no righteousness outside of Jesus Christ. This is the state of all mankind since the fall of Adam. All of us in Adam. Him, Adam, acting as our federal head. The state of humanity is condemnation already. Thorns and thistles is the illustration. It isn't worth keeping around. What, what you do with it, bring about condemnation and judgment. But Christ came. A great light. Accompanied by authentication by miracles and all the messages that preceded. Truth and righteousness comes, and this is judgment, verse 19, that light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You know why people reject Jesus Christ? It isn't because they don't have enough knowledge about him. You know why they reject him? Because of their evil heart. Because of their desire to do evil. Their desire not to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. You want to fix all the world's problems and all of the chaos and confusion? Here it is. Preach the gospel and have people confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He'll change everything in the heart of everyone through repentance and faith. They hate the light because they're doing wicked things, verse 20. And the light comes and then exposes their wickedness. This is the problem. This is why they don't want to hear it. This is why they don't want to hear what you have to say. This is why they wanted to rework what is written here because all of this is going to cut like a knife. We've been through that already in 412, right, of Hebrews. It's going to pierce asunder to the joints and marrow. It'll get to the heart of the matter. And the heart is our condition of our heart is condemned. It is wicked. And they hate the light, and they want to run away from the light. But there is a contrast. Verse 21, do you see it? Whoever does what is true 
comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It, it, it isn't that they're doing this, again, from their own um, initiative. This is God's work in their life, giving them eyes to see the glory of Christ, ears to hear the word of God, hear it where it's a significance to their heart and a heart to respond in repentance and faith, which is an expression of God's work in their heart. And so how, how do you have evidence of that? How, how will you know? Well, you, you want to go to the light. And so then that demonstrates that this is God's work in that life to bring about a change of direction. Those who hear and heed the word of God then, who see the light and reject the darkness in their own life, are blessed. And those who walk away in rejection are among the cursed. And like thorns and thistles, they have no benefit, only to be burned. Well, let's finish with this application. Verse 9. And that is encouragement for believers. I know it's kind of hard. But I think the preacher here fundamentally wants to lay a solid foundation. The, the warning is don't play around with this. Don't take this lightly. Don't be, the word he uses is lazy. Right? Don't be dull of hearing. Don't be sluggish. Translated in our text. Don't be lazy. This is important because there is a point of no return. And it brings great grief to him and to me also. If, if we see and know people who have been exposed to the truth and then walk away from it because there, there is no salvation outside of Christ. There is no flourishing outside of Christ. There is no fulfillment outside of Christ. But here you can hear the pastoral tone, though, in verse 9 as he shifts. Because this is what he wants to really get to. He wants to not emphasize the cursed. He wants to warn you not to be among the cursed and to examine your heart. But look at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. What a beautiful phrase, isn't it? This has been a hard sermon thus far. We've taken several weeks to go through this very section because it is complicated and people do misunderstand it. You can go back and pick up some of those expositions on these various aspects of the text as we've highlighted. But in the end, it's really kind of hard, isn't it? I mean, who wants to hear that? Walk away and never be able to be, never be able to come back? It's kind of frightening. The preacher puts the congregation on the edge of their spiritual seat, if you will, because now he wants to press home this idea of how blessed it is to have assurance in Christ. 
and how this will be such a, a grace for you to, to truly know and glorify God in. He's given us these admonitions, these warnings, called us to continue to mature in the faith and don't regress or don't walk away. But there's a shift here because he's talking now to the beloved ones and, and it is his prayer that all would be among the beloved. That's his prayer. It's mine too. The word beloved is, is a beautiful word. It relates to Jesus Christ. I'll just give you a couple quick texts. You don't have to look it up. I'll just give it to you. One is from to Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. When he, t- when he looks out at the saints, which, by the way, he often begins his pastoral epistles uh, or tra- and um, letters to the churches in, in that way. He talks about the saints at this location, the saints there. Saints just means the holy ones. They're made holy because of their union with Christ. Because remember, he is the holy one. So those that are in Christ have been adorned with the holiness of Christ. And therefore, God looks at us through Christ's holiness and not our unholiness. And yet, we're, we're adorning this beauty of the robes of Christ. And he calls this church at Colossae then to, to put, put that on in your life. In other words, to encourage you, to, to remind you what you've been given in Christ and who you are in Christ, and therefore dress like it or act like it. Colossians 3.12, I'll read it. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Three terms to describe the saints. Elect, that you, you didn't come by accident or mistake. You were among the cursed. Now you're among the blessed. It doesn't come out about because ultimately because of, of what you figured out and what you did. It is because of God's grace and mercy chosen. He said, I'll take that one. He said, why would he take this one and not that one? It's because of his grace and glory. Not because we would merit anything in ourselves that makes us worthy to be chosen. But beyond that, chosen ones, holy. As I mentioned, how are you holy? When I examine my own heart, all I can see is a lack of holiness. So I go and confess Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive my sins. I recognize he'll forgive me my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. But you know how God looks at me? He looks at me through the lens of Jesus Christ. And therefore, if I stand before him, I'll stand before him in the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. And because of that union with Christ, because he chose me to be in Christ before the foundation of the world, because he dressed me and clothed me in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, now I am beloved. I'm not beloved because I'm a lovely person. I'm not really that lovely. You only get to see me a few hours at a time. My wife gets to see me 24-7, and she can confess I'm not all that lovely (laughs) at times. Occasionally. I wish I was more lovely. But you know how God looks at those that are in Christ? He looks at you as absolutely beloved, as the Father loves the Son. That's the, that's the union. That's the glorious connection. What better relationship could you possibly have? 
All of our human relationships, when they're going good, that's really nice. It's a glimpse of that glory. But, you know, God's relationship with us is absolute perfection. So whatever greatest joy you might receive in this life uh, uh, through your various connections, whether it's your family or friends or neighbors or, or, or loved ones, that connection we have with God is, is so much greater. It's called beloved. And because of that, he calls then the church, recognizing who you are in Christ, then clothe yourself with compassionate hearts. Again, I, anecdotally, I, I, I just, I, I grew up in an uncompassionate environment. I, I, I couldn't explain how wicked it really was. But there was no love in my home. My mother abandoned me. My father had, had nothing to do with me. So how did I learn compassion? I looked two, two ways. One, in God's word, of course, and as a regenerate one that was made beloved, but also among God's people. I think I've told this story before, but I, I do like to repeat myself. I had a lady in the church that I went to, and she called me son. She had plenty of kids on her own, but she just wanted to love one more. I'm glad she did. We learn that love of God through our relationships with one another. And we can then put on compassionate hearts to other people and grow in that. I've grown. I have a lot more to grow, but I've grown. Kindness. Humility, meekness, and patience. And the list goes on. That's just an example of it. You know what you look like? Jesus Christ. That's, what, that's who we need to be conformed to. And we're conformed to because we're chosen, holy, and beloved. God has blessed us. Blessed us truly in this state because of our Union with Christ, as he would describe in Ephesians chapter 1. He blessed us, it would say in Ephesians 1, 6, in the beloved. It is in him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which are immeasurable. So verse 9, back in our text, then, we feel sh- sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he looks back to the congregation and says, you know, uh, you're, you're the beloved in your case, and beloved, we expect things that then flow out of your salvation. That is your union with Christ, your, your state with him, holy and beloved. And what would those things be? They, they, that would be the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because this is what God created you to do. To be distinctively different in that way. You might be familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace we're saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's, it's a gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one would boast. Do you remember verse 10? You ever work on that one? Memory verse? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. To walk means to live. It's your lifestyle. This is, 
This is what God has designed us to do. This is in the redemption of the sinner who he makes a saint, who he clothes with his righteousness and, and loves with uh, a, an infinite godly love. It changes the disposition of our heart to what he has created us to do to finally demonstrate that grace in our life by the good works that we do. It isn't our good works that's going to merit or achieve anything of, of that nature, but, but from the heart, the regenerate heart, that is what flows from it. These good works brought about by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 10 if you're in Hebrews 6. For God is not unjust, of course he's not, as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. You see how it's manifested? Beloved, this is what is going to help and bring about assurance. This is what God does in the heart of the believer. It isn't just gaining some knowledge about Christ. It isn't just participating in some religious practices. It's really a change of heart. It's demonstrated by what you do, that's the work, and the affections that you have for one another. That's the love that you show. And specifically, I'm not going to have time to unpack this any greater than just say this. Notice here in the text what it says, and serving the saints. And I could go on for some time, and I might have to revisit this, but that's the priority. There's a statement that says something to the degree of, like, familiarity breeds contempt. You ever heard of that? The idea is, you know, and that could be hard, like in a household. You just take for granted what you have and who you're with at times. And I think that's the emphasis here as well. Yes, I'm not suggesting we don't help those outside of the church. But there is a priority. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of the faith. That's how God's love is manifested, specifically with God's people. Final charge here in verse 11, chapter 6. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and have full assurance of the hope until the end. Again, opposite of being lazy, he's calling for diligence. And by doing so, that you would note what, what is the result is that your assurance of faith is increased and it perseveres how long? To the very end. This is the benefit of maturing in the faith and going on in Christ. So that you wouldn't be sluggish, verse 12. So that you wouldn't be among the lazy, among the dull of hearing, among the cursed. But instead, you would be, verse 12, 
imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Those are the ones who have gone before. Imitate those. Follow that example of those who have faith and patience and won't sell out the treasures that they have for a bowl of beans. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you will, through the power of the Spirit, let us hear and heed your word this day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to give you a moment now where you're at to think on these things. Take a moment privately. If you need to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and he's become glorious to you as we've spoken, you know you can do so right now. And so I encourage you to do so. Take a moment. Think on these things. I do pray that indeed we would not lose heart. Though our outer self is certainly wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. I pray this light and momentary affliction will indeed prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. May you, by your grace, grant us the ability to look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are just transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Grant us full assurance of hope in the, until the end. And indeed, may we imitate those who through faith and patience do indeed inherit the promises. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I've talked much about grace, and you tickled the ivories with that, so... I'm going to ask you to turn back to that if you don't mind. We probably know it. Uh, what number is it if you need it? 104 in your hymn book. Jerry will lead us. So I'll stand, turn to Amazing Grace 104.
dismissed. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen and amen. You're dismissed this morning. Thank you.